So I invite you to open up your Bibles. Uh, we'll be looking at uh, Jeremiah 29 um, this morning. You can, you'll find this in your worship guides or on the wall behind me as well. But just to explain what we're doing, um, we've been taking the past few weeks off from our sermon series in the Gospel of John. We'll be returning to John in two weeks. Uh, actually, next week we'll have uh, Darren Pisnell from Ironworks Phoenixville preaching for us. And But we've been taking uh, the past three weeks uh, to spend time thinking about our the DNA of the church, thinking about what it means for a church to be centered on the gospel, thinking about what it means for a church to be a, a kingdom, a, a community of the kingdom. And today we're going to be thinking about the mission uh, of God. And... But we're going to be thinking about the mission of God in a very particular way, anchoring ourselves in Jeremiah 29, 1 through 9. Um, but oftentimes when you think about the, the idea of mission, uh, from Scripture, you may think about one of the great commission passages, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Acts 1, 8, John 17, uh, 18 and 21. The reality is that in the Gospels, there's actually seven different great commission passages but one of the, and so when we have that mindset, we can easily get into this idea that mission is a New Testament thing and not an Old Testament thing. And one of the lessons we really want to learn this morning is that this is actually a biblical thing from the page in Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. So let's open up our Bibles. Let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's Word. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. So let's give our careful ear to God's words of love that are given to you and bought by Christ's blood for you as well. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasah, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, Sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. And give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. This is your word that you have given to teach and to instruct us, to convict us, to train us in righteousness. But this is your word that you have given to us so that we would become more like you and be your witnesses in this world. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would shape us and mold us, that we would become more like your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. On June 15th, 1985, a man walked into the Heritage Museum in Russia. And he, he walked into this museum with his specific intent. And his intent was to vandalize 
one of Rembrandt's paintings, Danae. And so what he did is that he took sulfuric acid and he threw it at the painting. And then he proceeded to slash this painting with a knife. He, it took the next 12 years for this painting to be fully restored. This was an act of vandalism. That word vandalism actually was created in 1794 to actually characterize the destruction and the vandalism, don't use a word in the definition, but to characterize the vandalism of artwork in the wake of the French Revolution. Perhaps one of the most famous paintings in the world is the Mona Lisa, and that has also been subject to vandalism. Someone tried to spray red spray paint at it. Someone threw a rock at it and various other things as well. And as, but we begin this sermon to think about this, this reality of vandalism because one of the best definitions of sin is from Cornelius Plantinga, and he says that sin is shalom vandalized. See, when God created the world, this goes back to Genesis 1. We heard a little bit about this in our, the very first membership question. But when God created the world, he sung praise and delight over his creation. That with every creative act, God said, this is good. This is good. This is good. And when all of creation was done and completed, God sung over the creation and said, this is good. This is very good. That is when God created humanity. He sung delight over it. As we learn from the Psalms and Romans and scriptures that all of creation sings praise to God. And because all of creation is, this, is beautiful and good. But something happened to that paradise, to that beauty, to that peace, that wonderful life with God. When Adam and Eve and he walked with God, something happened to that beautiful paradise. And that's when sin comes into the world. And so sin is this shalom, this peace that has been vandalized, that has been ruined. Perfection and glory, peace being vandalized. But again, the, God, the biblical story doesn't end there. Think about the Apostle Paul. Paul says that we are the new creation. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are the new creation. We are a new humanity. We are God's family. But also as followers of Jesus, we are actually sent into this world. And that is one of the lessons that we're going to be considering today. That we are sent into this world. And this is a calling that is very specific. This calling of being sent into the world is also very tangible. It's something that you should be able to take a step back at and see lived out. And so how we're going to, we're going to be considering this calling that we are sent by God to Westchester. This is how we're going to begin. And the first point is that we are sent by God. Look with me in verse 4. That we are sent by God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. So here we begin to see that God's people are sent people. We see this from the fact that God actually sends his people here into exile. But taking a step back out of this and looking at the bigger picture in the Old Testament, that God, that God called Abraham to follow him to come out of Ur. And when God called Abraham in Genesis 12, he says, come, follow me. I will bless you. I will make your, your descendants in, into a blessing to the nations. Think about Moses as well, who was actually sent to Egypt. Think about Jonah, who was sent to Nineveh. 
See, what Jeremiah is doing here is that he's writing a letter to those who are in exile. That is sad. That is traumatic. It is disorienting in Israel's life. See, for Israel, everything about Israel, like even their life with God and having blessings from God, that was the sign of that life with God and those blessings came from and come from the the promised land, the city of Jerusalem, even the, the temple. All of these were signs of God's presence and blessing to them. In fact, their their place was a tangible sign that they were, in fact, God's people. So what happens all of a sudden when that's lost? What happens when that's lost? See, the Babylonians defeated them in war, took the Israelites, displaced them. They became refugees. They were resettled throughout the Babylonian empire. Babylon took the best and the brightest to Babylon in order to be re-educated. They were put through like a re-education program or a re-education camp. That's where the book of Daniel picks up. But inevitably, these people, these Israelites would wonder, doesn't God love us? Where is God in this? How do we live in this pagan space? For Psalm 137 is one of the Psalms that is actually written during the, this time of exile. And Esau Macaulay, author of the book, Reading While Black, he highlights that this psalm just captures the trauma of God's people during this time period. So so Jeremiah is writing to a people who are hurt, who are confused, who, who are disoriented. And if you look in the first few verses of this chapter... We, you have a certain perspective that, verse 1, at the very end, Nebuchadnezzar had taken them into exile. It, that, so the idea is, if in the first verse, is that here we see hum, a, a humanity's agency taking Israel into exile. But then in verse 4, we learn that God is the one who sent Israel into exile. God is the one who, who sent Israel into exile. The reality is, friends, is that when you face hardships or, or difficulties, don't you wonder where God is in that, those moments? But yet scripture tells us that God is powerful, that God is sovereign, God is loving, he is caring, he is passionate about our growth even more so than we are. And there's a purpose in all our difficulties. And we need to tend to these moments in our life and ask God the question, what are you trying to teach me here? Like, so we ended our reading on verse 9, but here's verse 11. This is one that you perhaps know. For I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. See, where the, the, this actually goes is God is sending his people into exile to have a hope and to have a future. That's the where Jeremiah, that's the moment that Jeremiah is writing into. But he's writing them with some very specific directions. But before we get to these specific directions, let's think about our own cultural moment for a moment. Because for the past 65 years or so, we have been living in what writers have been calling a post-Christian culture. And so like Stefan Poss, who is a, I believe he's, a Dutch, but he's, he studies culture and the mission of the church. But he says that like up until 
1995, Christianity was seen as a morally good thing. Then from 1995 to 2015, Christianity was seen as a morally neutral thing. At worst, Christianity was weird. Hence the song, Jesus Freaks. If you remember that, Christianity is weird. It's a great song. But then ever since then, since 2015, that Christianity is seen morally regressive or backwards and so forth. And so that if you say that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ today, people will look at you with suspicion, with distrust and so forth. And so this, this idea right here of Israel being sent into exile is actually helpful to us to consider. This is very relevant to us. See, even this is a New Testament idea as well, that the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter writes to the elect exiles who are in Turkey. Because, so one of the lessons that we can just immediately pick up is that a Christian identity, identity a Christian identity, there we go, is an exilic identity. A Christian identity is an exilic identity because Jesus calls us to be in the world but not of the world. So while we say this world is not my home, we can still sing that this is my father's world. And that, that is our calling in this world. And so this is not only a cultural moment that we live in, this is actually the cultural moment that God has sent you to. This is the cultural moment that God has sent you to. And so historically, Christians have described this idea of our sent reality as being the mission of God, or where we are missionaries. That's really what we're considering today, that we are actually God's missionaries to this cultural moment in 2022 and to Westchester. But there are two things to clarify at this moment, because this word mission or missionary does have some baggage. Because first, when many people hear the word missionary, they think about colonialism, Western colonialism. So when Western missionaries were sent overseas to preach the gospel, they also demanded that people become like them in order to be seen as a mature, recognized Christian. So that, yes, you may be converted to Christianity, but you'd also have to learn English language, and you'd also have to wear Western suits and so forth. And so that perhaps the missionary Hudson Taylor, this is why he was so um, successful, is because he actually said, I'm going to dress up like a, a Chinese individual and minister the gospel. But the that Western colonial missionary model is actually very contrary to even Paul's own missionary methods. First Corinthians 9, 23, 27, to summarize, to the Jew, I become a Jew. To the, the Gentiles, I become a Gentile. To those under the law, I, I become under the law. To those without the law, I am without the law. So the second, so like just clarifying some baggage there, but there's something else to consider about this. Secondly, while Jesus sends his followers into the whole world, that is clear. Let's be very clear. God sends his followers to the whole world. That's in Matthew 28. That's also very clearly in Acts 1.8, where Jesus says that you will be my witnesses to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, but the re, that what, when we think about missions, or being a missionary, as Christians, how we think about that word within our Christian dictionary, so to speak, is that we think about missions as being over there or somewhere else. And many of you have wonderfully have gone on mission trips and have served and given your lives, perhaps for a year or two or three, in missions overseas. And that is wonderful and beautiful. That truly is wonderful and beautiful. 
the reality is that Christian, that missions is not over there. Missions is everywhere. It is an everywhere endeavor. And so here's Alan Briggs. His book, Staying is the New Going. For a long time now, mission has been framed as a far-off endeavor, a trip requiring a passport, a plane ticket, and a lot of packing. But God's mission is active everywhere, which means God's mission is active among your family, your friends, your community. And for God's work to become tangible, it must first become local, invading our everyday thinking and the places we have inhabit. And this is why Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, so you can read, in Westchester as it is in heaven. See, friends, for God's work to become tangible, it must first become local, invading our everyday lives. Not only has God sent us to this particular cultural moment, and he has a purpose for you in this particular cultural moment, he's also sent you to a very particular place. This is our second point, that God has sent us to a, to a particular place. This is verse 7. In verse 7, we read this, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So this verse all of a sudden captures a rich theology of place. But let's first begin with this word seek. The Hebrew word for seek here is actually the same word that's used throughout the Psalms. Here's Psalm 119, verse 10. Those who seek the Lord diligently will find him. So this same word is actually being used to describe our life with God, that we are called to, yes, seek the Lord, but here we're also being told to seek the welfare of the city that he has sent us to. And so God is calling Israel to seek the welfare of the particular city they are in, of Babylon. Babylon, just to be clear, that's their enemy. That's the one who defeated them. That's the one who terrorized them. See, even when Babylonians captured Jerusalem and took Israelites out of, out of Jerusalem to Babylon, they would drag them in ropes. They would even pierce their tongue and hook the rope to that piercing in their tongue. These were horrific and great wickedness against people. But yet God is calling them to Israel, to seek the Babylonian welfare. And so, so we have this idea of seek, but now let's think about welfare for a moment. Because welfare it is an accurate translation. The word, Hebrew word that's here is yes, that welfare is an accurate translation for this word, but it's not, it's not sufficient. It's, it doesn't capture the weight of it because the Hebrew word here is shalom. Think about the introduction. Sin is shalom vandalized. This is a call to seek the shalom of a city. This wonderful biblical word means peace, wholeness, prosperity, renewal. And then that within the entire biblical story, you can only have shalom when people know God. Because the only true moment of shalom throughout all of scripture is when sin did not exist. Shalom is what characterized the Garden of Eden. And that shalom is only possible when God is the one who is reigning and people know him. So what actually makes welfare a fitting translation is that when we pursue life with God, 
and seek others to have that same life and knowledge of him, there will be very practical, tangible, social implications. We will be seeking the prosperity, the wholeness, and the welfare of others. So this command is to seek the welfare of the city, to seek the peace of the city. This is exactly what Jesus did and modeled for us, that Jesus came and he dwelt among us. So Eugene Peterson translated that passage that Jesus moved in to the neighborhood. That's what Jesus' entire life and ministry was, was about. He moved into the neighborhood. Vito Aido, he is a pastor in, in Jersey, he wrote this. And like, so the historic Christian language that characterizes what I'm describing as the word parish ministry. But this is what Vito wrote. That parish ministry is an attempt to do church with the conviction that the incarnation actually happened. Grace operates in the arena of the physical world. So to think about spiritual matters is also to take physical matters seriously. This means that everything we do in church should be very attentive to place. Where we live, where we work, where we worship, even where we have our community groups. I love how he opened that. That parish ministry is an attempt to do church with the conviction that the incarnation actually happens. So here's the question. If Jesus would come to Westchester and minister, what would that ministry look like? If Jesus would come to Westchester and minister to this community, what would that ministry look like? The, minister, the answer should be, we should be able to say that's what, our, that's what we're doing. That's what our ministry is. Like, just look at the church. For example, and I love the Liberty Network and Liberty Churches. Some of you know that amazing church network. But their mission statement, if I could steal it, I would. And it is this, that our mission is to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Christ. That is our calling as Christians, to live and speak and serve as the very presence of Christ. That is our calling. And the reality is that when we think about this, that God has given us a place to love, we cannot claim to love people if we also don't love the environments that they are in. Think about your home. This is just, this is just to make very practical common sense. Think about your own home, that you love your family. So because you love your family, what do you do? You love your family, so you do the laundry. You love your family, so you you'd make dinner. You love your family, so you do the dishes. You complete home repairs. You run errands. You take care of the environment that your family is in. And see, God has sent us to this place called Westchester in order to seek shalom here. To pray that God's kingdom would come here in Westchester as it is in heaven. And so Jeremiah, he's like God is sending Israel into Babylon to seek the welfare of the city. And God gives some very clear instructions to the Israelites on what to do here. This is our third point. Thinking about some missional rhythms. See, Israel is actually being exiled here for generations. In the previous chapter, we did not look at this, but there's a false prophet, Hananiah. And this is actually what's being alluded to in verses 8 and 9 when, Paul, when God says, don't listen to false prophets. But what the false prophets are saying is that, hey, don't worry, you're going to be back in Jerusalem in two years. That's what the false prophet Hananiah is saying. 
But what Jeremiah is highlighting is that you're going, that the Israelites are going to be in exile, not for one generation, not for two generations, but for three and a half generations. That's what Jeremiah is pointing out. So, he, so here are the missional rhythms that God gives to Israel for, for Babylon. Build homes and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. And give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. See, what Jeremiah is pointing out is that this is a long-term calling. This is a long-term vision. And it challenges our American experience. It challenges our American transience. See, roughly 10% of the entire American population moves every year. Add that up. Every 10 years, 10%... No, excuse me, every year 10% of the American population moves. That means every 10 years the entire American population just moved. You can narrow it down even further that every five years is, is the average number that a family moves. One of the best things you can do for the sake of gospel ministry is to stay put and to plant roots. There's no such thing as bigger or better for Christians. It was Francis Schaeffer one of my personal heroes, who wrote that there are no little people, there are no little places. What it means is that there are no insignificant people, nor are there any insignificant places. And what we need to do is to fight transience. We need to fight this temptation that bigger is better. We need to fight this temptation just to have a bigger house for the sake of having a bigger house or to be in a better school district just to be in something better. By the way, it's a different story when your family is outgrowing your apartment, just to be clear. And so Sean Banesh, he's an author who lives in Portland. He writes this, that presence does not negate proclamation. Instead, presence empowers proclamation. Presence gives proclamation legs to stand on. But by becoming rooted and established in a place, we, learn the, we earn the right and the credibility to be heard. Friends, one of the best things you can do to advance the gospel in this world, in this place, is to stay put and plant some roots. Specifically as a church, we need to do this. And we as a church need to ask, what does Jesus' kingdom look like here? Because Jesus came, like go back to our prayer of adoration. Jesus came for the lost, the sick, the poor, the needy, the hurting. Jesus came for broken sinners. Jesus was sent to heal this this world and to reconcile all things to God. So where's the need? That's the, the other question that we need to ask. Because God's kingdom will flourish in the need of this world. And so the answer to these two questions of Jesus' reign and the needs of the city is actually that, that the answer, that intersection, is where God sends us. Because when Jesus reigns, the shalom, the peace, and the prosperity, the welfare of the city follows. So here's two examples. My friend Ray Kanata moved to New Orleans in 2005. You may remember that some significant event happened to New Orleans in 2005. So Ray went down to Redeemer Presbyterian Church and he interviewed to be their uh, next uh, senior pastor and he went back home to Jersey. But three weeks later, Hurricane Katrina hit. 
Ray moved. It's beautiful. Ray moved to New Orleans. His church was scattered. There were 17 people in the church. And so over the next course of 10 years, this church, they rebuilt 600 different homes. Not only that, they planted two other churches. That's just one example. The church is sent into the neediness of this world in our local places. So another example is that um, one of our parent churches is City Church of Wilmington. The City Church of Wilmington organized in 2016. I remember being a part of that organization service in February 2016. And the following week, there were three shootings in town on the same block that members in the church lived. Then that following year, Newsweek magazine published that here's Wilmington, Delaware, Murder Town, USA. See, this is the neediness of a world. What do we do when we see the neediness in our world? Do we run away? Think about what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? No, Jesus came, lived, and he moved into the neighborhood. He was sent into this world. And so the wonderful gospel reality of the missionary identity for us as a church. Think about John 17, 18. Father, as you have sent me, I send them. Church, we are sent to Westchester to display his kingdom here. And so at the very end of scripture, there's this wonderful, glorious gospel truth that is, that is spoken by Jesus. Behold, I am making all things new. Think about John three sixteen that God so loved the world. The word, that amazing Greek word, world, cosmos, cosmos, means real, tangible people, real, tangible places. God so loved the entire cosmos that he sent, he gave his only beloved son, so Jesus, when he goes to the cross, he dies upon the cross and he reconciles you to, to, to God, yes. But the lesson of Colossians 1, 15 through 22 is that Jesus, when he died upon the cross, he reconciled all things to himself. And so just as sin vandalized God's glorious creation, just so sin is the vandalism of God's masterpiece, Friends, dear church, we get to be the tools used in the restoration process. Yes, that may mean going overseas with the, and taking the gospel to people, but that can also mean planting down roots and staying put. That can mean being a part of Christianity Explored. That can be, mean uh, serving our community in tangible ways. And there's a lot of tangible needs in this, in this immediate community and also our region. The reality, friends, is that God has sent us here to love this place so that we can see his kingdom come in Westchester as it is in heaven. Let's pray.